Welcome back to another Takes by the Lake at Cleveland.com. I am your host, Doug Lee Maurice, and I will tell you, this is a really interesting conversation. We were recording this Wednesday morning, and while we were recording it, the next round of information in the Urban Meyer Ohio State saga came out. And since then, that's all I've been dealing with. But I was glad I got to do this interview first. Um, so we could get this in this week for Takes by the Lake. We try to do it every Friday at cleveland.com. Hope you guys are subscribed um, on iTunes or Google Play or wherever you get your podcasts. We want you to listen to Takes by the Lake. This is Jay Crawford, and we talked about everything. We were going to talk for 25 minutes. We talked for over an hour. Jay Crawford is an Ohio native. He is calling... Browns preseason games. You're going to hear his voice in the Browns preseason calling games with Tim Couch. He worked at ESPN for 13 years from or for 14 years from 2003 to 2017. He was part of the ESPN layoffs in April of 2017. He's still being paid by ESPN, which means he can't get another full-time gig yet. He's had a really interesting career in sports broadcasting. And here's what we talked about. We talked about his thoughts on the Browns, because he's calling the Browns games. We talked about LeBron James. We talked about how he got his job at ESPN. He helped launch the morning programming at ESPN. And we talked about Skip Bayless. He knows Skip Bayless very well. He worked with Skip Bayless for years at ESPN on First Take. We talked about a lot of interesting stuff. If you like Cleveland sports, you'll like this. If you like the business of sports, of sports media... You'll like this. And even if you don't like that stuff, I think you'll like it because Jay's a pretty interesting guy. And he's made a great career of talking. And then he talked to me. So that's pretty cool for me because we're just a little podcast. So thank you so much to Jay Crawford um, for doing this. I know you guys will enjoy it. Brown stuff heating up. I've been doing less Browns the last couple days because I've been all Ohio State. I hope you are reading our coverage of the Urban Meyer situation at Ohio State. Bill Landis and I have been um, diving headfirst into all of that. We're trying to be measured. We're trying to be fair. We're trying to report facts and then let our analysis and opinions be guided by the facts and not get out ahead um, of what the situation is telling us. I will honestly say that I think there have been some uh, columns and stories written from uh, people on a national level that have gotten out ahead of the facts. And um, I don't know what's going to happen with Urban Meyer. I don't think it's a certainty that anything will happen. I do not think it's a certainty that he will be fired. I think it's a possibility. Um, but I think depending how things go, there may be things that have been out there um, that people will look at in hindsight and say, was that a completely um, fair assessment of the situation in the moment. And, and we're trying our best to avoid that. Not because, you know, it's about us, but because it's not fair to the people involved. We're trying to be fair to everyone involved, and we're trying to guide you through this because that's how we see this. We see you um, as people that we want to guide through this. A lot of stuff is confusing. Um, it's confusing to us sometimes, and we try to research it and talk to experts and get it right. So we hope you are following our Ohio State coverage. We hope you are listening to Buckeye Talk and you're subscribed to that. Um, we do that every Wednesday. We did an emergency podcast um, that went up Thursday morning, 
with the latest on this. Whenever there's more news to talk about, we will do more emergency Buckeye Talk podcasts. Me, Bill Landis, Tim Bielek, so get subscribed to that. But for now, thanks to Jay Crawford. Um, get ready to hear Jay on the Browns preseason games and get ready to hear him right now with me, Doug Maurice, on Takes by the Lake from Cleveland.com. So happy to be joined by Jay Crawford here on Takes by the Lake. Jay Collin, preseason games for the Browns right now. And Jay, I have like a million questions about your career and your <laughs> life. It's so fascinating. But I'd like to dig in on the Browns a little bit first because they're also fascinating right now. We don't know each other. I saw you at Browns camp the other day and introduced myself and we set up this podcast. But you just you get out there and you watch the Browns just like, you're out there because you're going to call games, but what do you see? Do you see a team that offers fans a reason for hope right now? Absolutely, Doug. And let me let me preface that comment by saying I'm that guy that every late July, early August is brimming with enthusiasm and believes that you can probably sneak out more wins than the experts would believe. Um, but all that being said, last year... Um, I remember vividly when the schedule came out and being pretty familiar with the roster and the quarterback situation and not very hopeful. I remember having a conversation with my son and I literally said, I don't know where the win is going to come Mm. from. Um, And, you know, he kind of looked at me like I had three heads because as I've gotten older, um, I've probably become a little more cynical in my expectations and he still has that youthful enthusiasm. Um, that I had when I was in my early and mid-20s. But when I look at this team and compare it to last year's, there's just no comparison. The makeover is astonishing. The names and the talent that John and his staff has been able to bring in here looks like it's a football team. You know, I I know that, you know, a lot of times we in the media uh, have something that we call the look test. Mm -hmm. And this team passes the look test. They look like a football team at a lot of different positions. And last year, short of, you know, probably Duke and, and miles, um, you looked at the team and, and you just wondered if there was a, a breakout superstar among the, amongst the group. And, you know, this year has a much different feel to it. I think they improved the competition in each position room, which is critical because if you're getting better in a micro sense, then the end result is obviously you're better in the macro. And I think that's what they've pulled off here. Um, I do try to tamper my enthusiasm a little bit because I have been burned before um, with heightened expectations, but I I do believe uh, that this team has the capability of being markedly better than they were last year, which isn't saying much, I know, um, but I, I do I do believe that this ship is finally um, turning towards the right point on the horizon. So, Jay, just in the in the name of being up front, I am a Sashi Brown truther. Okay. I lo- I love the tank. I love the the the, <laughs> the attempt at something new because I felt like the Browns, since they returned, had lost, and and I didn't know how they were going to shake themselves out of that. Um, You're so interesting to me because you are in the media, but you also make no bones about the fact, you know, you're an Ohio guy, you're a Cleveland sports fan, and here you are now back covering and calling these Browns games. 
but you were you were from afar witnessing all this. What did you think when Sashi Brown was hired and they went about this the way they did? Did you hate it? Did you like it? Or were you in between? Well, Doug, I'll tell you, in, in my position, I unfortunately um, had access to people with far greater knowledge than I when it comes to Sashi's background and the potential uh, that the organization had to make a real splash with with that hire. Um, all that being said, you know, all of that knowledge was secondhand knowledge. I talked to a lot of people with the Eagles. I talked to a lot of people that cover the league on a daily basis. Um, you could probably figure out on your own who they were. Mm-hmm. Um, and not to say that my opinion was solely based on the information I was getting from them, but a lot of the information that I was getting from them was that this is just, Sashi's a great guy and it's awesome that he's getting the opportunity that he was with the Browns, but that uh, it wasn't the right guy at the right time for this team. Now, all that being said, I, I, I think it's very important to point out that a lot of the groundwork that was done for John to have the class that he brought in was laid by Sashi and his group. Um, and, I think the organization was at a point where we were far beyond growing pains and the, you know, the fans want one thing. They want the number next to their team to be bigger than the number next to the, to the opposition each Sunday. That is, you know, it is a very bottom line oriented business, as you know, and oftentimes you can't see the foundation to the building as it's being built. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's that was the case with Sashi. Look, I, I think um, Sashi did things, but unfortunately, when you're turning around a ship that's pointed so far in the wrong direction, that happens glacially. It, it doesn't happen um, at warp speed. Now, um, John was able to put together um, a nice class of free agents and draft picks, primarily because he had the draft currency and the salary cap room to do it. But all that being said, um, and, and, and all of this will, will bear out in the results. It, on paper, and so far through five or whatever days of camp, it looks like, this puzzle is coming together very nicely. Yeah. But we won't know for sure until October or November. Right. Uh, and, and it might take even longer. I mean, obviously, we may not see um, whether or not Baker is the real deal for, uh, who knows, maybe into next season. And if that's the case, then, you know, that's, that's how it's going to work. But it's going to take time for us to know for sure. But, you know, the early results, I, I don't know that you would agree, but, I mean, if we're looking at the same thing each day at camp, the early results seem to be pretty good. Um, but you just can't tell from practice. You can't, I, I, uh, the fans that I've talked to that are out there that are overly excited and starting to think about a playoff ticket package. You know, I, I just say, remember it's five days of practice <laughs> yeah, and yeah. we, we won't know um, until we know. And that, and that's going to be, I, I usually think that, through four to six games of the season, you have a pretty good idea 
of what you're going to have. I think the exception to that is when you have a young team that's still learning how to win. Yeah. You may see dramatic turnaround within the season. I think we saw that um, in Mangini's year, one of Mangini's years. We saw that um, as the season played out, we were watching a young team get confidence and learn how to win. And you can you can put together a nice little role. And um, I, I think it's going to take a little while for us to know what we have. Jay, as you observed this um, while you were in Bristol, Connecticut, working for ESPN and still obviously keeping your, your uh, finger on Cleveland sports, since the Browns have been back, as you watch that as, as someone who knows sports but also as a fan, did, was, has it just been bad luck? That, that the Browns have been this since 1999? Or do you think there was a through thread somewhere there? I, I don't want to put you on the spot, and I don't want to get bogged down in the past, but I'm just curious because you, I like talking to guys like you because you're a very informed sports person who also has that Cleveland fan gene. I've talked to Hugh Hewitt. I've talked to Daryl Morey. I like talking to people who have had success but at their heart are Cleveland sports fans. What, what, what did you see, Jay? Why did this happen for so long? Doug, I think just like uh, um, a period of sustained success is a blend of proper moves and luck, I think that a sustained run of failure can also be attributed to the same mixture. You have to have um, consistency in making the wrong decisions which I think, I think the Browns have. And you also have to have a, a string of bad luck, of big things going against you. Yeah, And I think that's exactly what we've seen here. Um, you know, it, it's hard to nail it to a common thread because there is no common thread from the rebirth. And, and you know, I know that people will say, well, uh, that, that goes back 20 years. I understand that. But the antithesis of all of the change that this organization has had is what's gone on in new England. Yep. They've had the same owner. They've had the same, uh, head coach and they've had the same quarterback. And those really are three of the four cornerstones of any organization. It's your owner. It's your general manager and, and, and really, and his entire staff, and it's the coach and it's the quarterback. That's what supports the building. And in New England's case, they have Hall of Fame cornerstones. Right. And they were able to keep them on the same page, even though we had a little bump in the road last year, a public bump in the road. I think that what they have done there is nothing short of astonishing. That doesn't happen in today's agent, uh, free agency world and just, you know, teams being torn down by success. Look what's happened to Seattle. Um, right. Once they had to pay their quarterback, Doug, they didn't have the money that they had prior to spread around to keep the best talent in the best positions. Their defense doesn't resemble what it used to. What's amazing to me is, as New England was going through those metamorphoses after championships, they were able to sustain success because they had the head coach and the quarterback as consistent pieces, the most vital pieces to any football team, in my view. And they were able to sustain that success. 
in 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 part, Seattle's trying to do the same thing. They're trying to stay at the upper echelon of the talent curve without ever experiencing the four and twelve and the five and elevens. And Pittsburgh has been able to do that. Yep. And again, when you look at Pittsburgh's um, trajectory, consistency um, with ownership, they have a blueprint that there's a there's a a guidebook on what the Pittsburgh Steelers are and how they're going to be constructed. They have the Hall of Fame quarterback in Ben. They've done a tremendous job in filling in the pieces around him to always give their fan base a realistic expectation of 10 wins and a division title. That is so difficult to do in sports. And the Browns, unfortunately, have been at the flip side of that cycle. They have done what's equally difficult to do, and that's to stay at the bottom end right. of that talent cycle. Right. Um, you know, that's not. It, someone once asked me, "Is it more difficult to go zero and sixteen or sixteen and zero?" And I said, "I think they're equally difficult." Yeah. Um, and you know, we saw instances last year where the Browns um, snatched defeat from the jaws of victory. The Jets game comes to mind. Yep. There are many games that come to mind. So, you know, th- these guys get paid too. And these guys are, they want to win, and, and they're professional. It's just that there's been a long string of bad luck and bad decisions. And, you know, hopefully um, the decisions precedes the luck part of this. And as they start to make what, at least on paper now, seem to be good decisions, hopefully that will uh, change the luck that follows. We could talk about the Browns for five hours, but but I, I really also want to get into your life in sports. I love this kind of stuff. I love origin stories. And so you were, it was 14 years at ESPN, is that right, Jay? Correct. Okay. And that clock, believe it or not, is still ticking. By the time it's done, it'll be 15. Wow. <laughs> How did you get hired there? Um, I'm just fascinated about, I've known some people over the years that wind up at ESPN. You, you ended up helping, you ended up launching um, sort of this, the ESPN morning show empire um, with cold pizza that I know people remember very fondly. You were in Tampa at that time. Did you audition? Did they just see you and say, we want some Jay Crawford? How does that happen in your career? Yes, it's, it's more the latter. I was in Tampa um, and I've been there for about four years. I had worked five years in Columbus at WBNS. And the year prior to me leaving for ESPN, the Super Bowl was in Tampa. And as you know, um, with the Super Bowl come the executives. And I just remember the weeks leading up to the Super Bowl, particularly the week leading up to the Super Bowl. And that was, I think, Super 30. Or maybe that okay. was when the Ravens beat the Giants. Okay. Um, and Trent Dilfer came home and um, and won the Super Bowl. Well, that year, um, the week before, we were obviously I was at the ABC station. We were doing a ton of Buccaneers coverage. In fact, most of our newscasts throughout the day were were sports oriented. Even though the Buccaneers weren't playing in the Super Bowl, it was a huge story locally. So. I was getting a ton of exposure, and um, I was getting phone calls from different organizations, um, different agencies, 
wanting to know if I was interested in signing with them. And I've never um, been with an agent, so I really wasn't too concerned with signing with an agent. But um, I did take some some meetings with some networks, and I met with some folks at ESPN, and um, they said, we're developing some projects, some that we think would be really good for you, and we'll be in touch. And it was a couple of months. Um, they reached out to me and asked me if I would be interested in a show that they were launching. And it didn't really have much appeal to me. And it wasn't in um, Bristol, um, which was made it more attractive to me because I had previously lived in Hartford, Connecticut and wasn't in love with, the, with that area and living there anyhow. It just was different from what I was used to. So um, we didn't speak for a while. And then the next year... Um, I ran into a bunch of folks again at the Super Bowl. This time the Browns, or excuse me, the Buccaneers were playing in the Super Bowl. Um, and that was in San Diego. And the Bucks won. And they were, again, able to see some of the stuff that I was putting together. And they had then pitched a show to me, which which was cold pizza, in, in March, shortly after the Super Bowl. And it just didn't sound like it was um, that it was exactly the right thing for me. And I had just signed a new five-year contract to stay uh, with ABC in Tampa. And um, so I, I was flattered by the interest, but I, I loved my life in Tampa. I, I always liked working locally because I like getting into three teams mm -hmm. um, and building relationships and you know not trying to blanket the entire sports universe. Um, when you do that, when you do a lot of things – you can do a lot of things adequately. When you're doing a few things, you can do a few things very well. And that's is the way I would compare working network from local. And I didn't really want to leave Tampa because um, they had baseball, hockey, and football. They were just coming off, off of a Super Bowl championship. I knew that the Lightning were very close. And I was, at that point, even, in, uh, believe it or not, I was excited about the Rays' future because I knew that they had recently drafted some really young, exciting players. And I felt like that was an organization that wasn't far away either. Um, so after some discussions, I just felt like it was best that I stay here. My kids were both in middle school and I didn't think that the timing was right. Um, and the contract that I had signed would basically take my kids um, through high school. Right. Okay. Very close. Um, but I, they then asked if um if I would make a trip to New York, they wanted to show me where the studio was going to be based and they wanted to um, get a better opportunity to uh, maybe convince the kids that New York City was a fun and exciting place to be. And the next thing you know, uh, I was flying home and the kids were completely on board. And, you know, I had already had permission from my general manager to talk to ESPN. Then I had to go have a conversation with them. Could I leave and break the five-year contract, which I just signed, which... Typically, I wasn't a fan of, um, but he had some relationships with some folks in management at ESPN as they had worked together nationally at CBS um, in years prior. So to cut the, to the chase, um, we, we worked out an, an agreement, and um, I began as the host of Cold Pizza, and it was a, you know, at the time, it was a big gamble. There was nothing live right on anywhere um covering sports in the morning that the, the theory at that point was there's just not an audience for it um and i 
believed wholeheartedly that there was, and I believed that we could kind of forge our own uh, way through and be, be pioneers, which ended up exactly that being the case. So um, I, it was with Cold Pizza. I, think, I believe it was Cold Pizza for three and a half years. We moved the show to Bristol from Manhattan after three and a half or four years. I can't remember the exact timeline, primarily because we were we had to flip to high definition. Okay. Um, everything was going high definition, and we did not have – we were in the New Yorker Hotel – which was a 40-story hotel that was – you weren't going to start knocking down columns at the, <laughs> at the ground floor to expand the studio to make it high-def capability. Um, so they had just built a, a new digital center back on campus, and they wanted to move the show back. And they also – we had filtered in debate after about a year, maybe a year and a half. And so the show was kind of – had two personalities. We were this – kind of wacky all over the board morning show that did segments and athlete interviews. And we also did um, interviews with uh, movie stars and musicians and interesting folks. And then the other half of the show was the debate portion with Skip Bayless and, and Woody Page. And that part of the show was really gaining traction. And as that did, the, the, uh, the profile of the show was heightened pretty I wanted to reboot when we moved because the show on Friday looked like this show that was being done from a bachelor pad um, uh, in in Manhattan. And Monday when they flipped the switch, it was going to look very corporate, high tech, high definition in a clearly different space. Okay. So after a myriad of discussions at the executive level, they had decided that we were going to change the name with the move. And they had come up with first take primarily because – we were the first thing on in the morning, um, and you were getting pretty hot takes from two guys with uh, considerable writing background. So the show became first take, and um, it continued its growth pattern um, to the point where, um, at one point, you know, we we had some pretty heady um, <clears throat> numbers that we could tout, not just in masses, but you know, we always um, had the largest uh, minority demographic. Hmm. We also um, shared for a very long time, and I'm not familiar with the numbers now, so I can't say that these are still true, but we, for a long time in television, Doug, it's all about minutes spent viewing. Okay. Um, you build your audience throughout a two-hour show by maintaining viewership from segment to segment. Typically, the way it works is you're building your audience when you're in content, provided it's compelling and you're losing your audience the second you go to a commercial break. Um, so it's all about properly teasing segment to segment and having compelling content that you can tease. And I think, um, our debates allowed us to do that. So our minutes spent viewing were at one point the highest at the network because we weren't necessarily, if a show has, if a two-hour show has ten segments, we weren't giving you ten different micro shows. We were giving you um, a myriad of different content, but the common thread through it was debate. And if you like this debate, you might love uh, the next one when we talk about is To um, uh, an asset or is is he a deficit yeah. to the team? So that we found a lot of success in that. And the more we did it and the more we looked at the research, seeing exactly what it was that people were gravitating to 
and that was like breaking down minute by minute ratings reports. We saw that when we were in debate, the numbers were skyrocketing. And when we would go back to the other segments, we would begin to erode viewers. So um, common sense is um, give them what they want. And that's pretty much what the embrace debate movement was all about. Um, you know, I know the show takes a lot of heat and the executives take a lot of heat because um, anything that's popular is also repulsive, as you know. Right. <laughs> and, and I think um, that I would run into people that were like, why do you why do you talk about Tim Tebow four times every every day? And I said, what's I think the better question is, why do you sit through four different Tim Tebow debates? You seem to know that we went four times on Tim Tebow. Right. If it, if it was um, turn off television to you, you only would have seen one of them. Right. And so it was, it was, um, and Tim was the flashpoint to the show. I think that was clearly the height of the show's success. I've never seen a polarizing figure in sports um, greater than Tim Tebow's effect. And first take rode the rode rode the coattails of of the Tebow effect to the highest ratings that the show has ever seen well, and it was very interesting to be a part of it it's fascinating jake cuz i mean the idea that when you launched that and you started that like you said there was nothing like that there wasn't the sports kind of today show kind of thing sitting around on the bachelor pad having a conversation and now you see that everywhere everybody has that vibe of let's relax and hang out and sit around that ethos has spread it's on the NFL network it's what the the TBS basketball guys do it's that hanging out kind of quality and you helped launch that and then also the obviously the debate idea has taken over TV sports to the point that that's what TV sports is now it's either sitting around and hanging out or it's a debate show, and half the time it's both at the same time. It's almost hard to imagine a time when there was none of that because it's everywhere now. And and did you that you were in on the ground floor of that? Where television sports is now? Are you surprised? Or as you were doing this, the relaxed feel, hangout kind of thing, and then you saw what the debate stuff was. Is this exactly where you thought TV sports would wind up? I figured that it would. I didn't know that it would be to the extent. I didn't know that it would, we would, you know, go through this entire explosion and metamorphosis of, of what television is and how it's done. Um, and by that, I mean, look, I'll tell you flat out, Doug. When we launched Cold Pizza, we were a terrible television show. Um, <laughs> and and the hardest thing in in television to overcome <clears throat> is a horrible first impression. And I do think that we were lucky that when we launched, we weren't in the social media era mm. because that may have been the death knell into the entire project because the whispers were horrible. Um, I, I wasn't I wasn't going through this process with rose-colored glasses thinking we were doing great work. Um, after every show, I was um, – I was on the phone with executives figuring out how do we fix this because it is wildly broken. And in TV, you don't get a chance to just meander through the days doing bad show after bad show. Uh, eventually, you are beholden to the number. And uh, the numbers were horrible. And the content was horrible. I, I wasn't surprised that no one was watching. We came on the air with great fanfare, a huge promotion budget and campaign. And we fell flat. 
Um, and it was disappointing to me because the show that I was originally pitched was not the show that we were putting on TV. Hmm. And for a myriad of reasons, um, which is all, it's all minutia and wouldn't be of any interest to your, to your viewers or to your listeners. But I, I'll say um, to ESPN's credit, they saw the same thing I did, and, and they knew that it had to be fixed. Now, in that environment, remember, there's no competition. There's no NFL network at this point. Right. Um, there, it, it, on ESPN1, they're running SportsCenter reruns, so there's no live compelling content pulling viewers there. Um, so almost it was almost viewer apathy that we stayed on the air. Um, there, was, there were not a ton of choices. So that allowed us to maintain a base number that was doable for that first year. Um, and, you know, a lot of it is, Doug, you know this very well, when an organization picks a quarterback high in the draft, very rarely do you see them after one year wash their hands and say, you know what, we made a mistake. Right. Now, maybe that's a poor example to use because the Browns just did that. Yeah, at 52, uh, but not at number one. But yeah, yeah. Right. right. I mean, they, 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 <laughs> when you take a guy that's that high, right? Um, you know, and, and you're right, but, but when you entrust your franchise to a rookie quarterback, right. a relatively high draft pick, and then you wash your hands of them a year later, what, you're, what are you telling your fan base? Well, you can do that because it's a different regime, but we missed with this guy. Right. Um, we failed. We made a mistake. There were a lot of people in Bristol that were um, didn't want to re- knee jerk respond to the critics. They didn't want to um, make it look like they were wrong from the beginning. So they wrote it out for a year, and then um, after many uh, conversations with when are we going to fix this, I got a call one night saying we just signed a couple of high profile, nationally known writers that have strong sports opinion that are going to be a daily part of the show. They're moving to New York and they're joining you on the, on the set and the cast went through a major improvement and almost from jump, the numbers, um, responded. We, we, we just started building from that day. Forward, we started building, um, a very loyal fan base and the show took off. And I think, you know, in TV, like anything else, um, when, you know, offenses that are heavy on RPO are successful, what do you see? Yep. You see a lot of offenses that are, you know, run past. You see, a, a, that's the case in any sport. Um, in the NBA, um, teams start having success without a true big man. So what do you see? You see um, the extinction of the true, what we used to call a center. Um, and I think the same thing could be said for TV. Um, other networks were seeing the success that we had with um, morning talk and debate and our own network saw that and said we need more of that right. and other networks said we need us some of that right so um that spawned what we have today and i think it's all cyclical look doug that cropped up um every it's kind of you know it it's not necessarily the tail wagging the dog um we we give the viewers what they want and we know what they want because we experiment on a daily basis in the industry. And then we look at the numbers the next morning and we find out what worked and what didn't same thing in sports. You yep. look at the scoreboard at the end of the game. Well, we had 75 passes because that doesn't work, <laughs> you know? So 
you, you kind of um, do the same thing in TV. And because it was successful, you saw a lot of imitation. And it was successful because, Doug, the information that we used to provide in all of those studio-based shows, they were all information-based. Right. It's not about the information anymore. Information is piped into my hand in real time, um, and I'm the executive editor of it. I decide what comes into my feed, and so it's only stuff I'm interested in. TV shows can't do that. They can't give every viewer everything that they're interested all the time. So we tried to find something that would draw the most number of viewers at any given time. And that chord right now is debate. It feels like we could be at the tail end of that and that TV um, geniuses better think of something new because this now is no longer new. It feels, right. it feels old. And when you see Skip's show pop up on Fox, and this is not a, a jab at Skip in any way, they just took what was successful at ESPN and with absolutely no fresh ideas or creativity, spawned it over on FS1. Right, right. And, um, you know, they're still waiting to get traction with it. And I don't know how long they wait on it. But um, these guys, they're the geniuses. They're charged with coming up with new and creative content. And the clock's ticking. Um, the audience is, is ready for something new and different. And I love sitting back and seeing what they come up with. I could, I seriously, Jay, I could talk to you about this stuff for 10 hours. I love this kind of stuff. I know you have a life to lead, though. I want to get in a couple more quick ones. I, I feel like I, I have to ask this because I'm just interested in what you would say. You know, in sports, we ask people about their teammates all the time. We go ask Rashad Higgins about, you know, Tyrod Taylor. Skip Bayless is so out, so known in the sports world now he's he's on some level i think become a caricature of himself to some degree but like you said when you when you guys got him he was a respected national columnist with very informed strong sports opinions what what was your impression of working with that guy of the skip bayless that you knew working with him on a regular basis well first of all there's no kinder person that i've ever worked with and when i tell people that they're blown away by that statement um I will say Skip is very, very intelligent. Um, he, he I, I don't know this. I've never seen it. I've never seen the guy take an IQ test. I would say that he has an extraordinarily high IQ. He's um, certainly, in my guesstimation, would be in the Mensa level. He's very cerebral. Um, and I think what Skip should be credited most for is figuring out after, by the way, a long career in television where he never really jumped off the page. Mm -hmm. He did that NFL matchup show with Jaws for years, and it was in relative anonymity. Um, you know, he never became a star at that. I think what Skip should be credited for is creating a character that was lovable and hateable and respectable, all in the same vein. And that's very difficult to do, Doug. He has an incredibly loyal and large fan base. Mm -hmm. People that may disagree with him, but they believe in him or they respect his word so much that it was appointment television at 10 a.m. People were flocking to ESPN2 because they wanted to hear what Skip had to say. And... They, there was one of two things going on as in real time as he was saying it. People were screaming at the TV saying, you're an idiot, you have no idea what you're talking about. 
or they were saying, oh, my God, that is that is accidental or backwards genius and it works. And now I see your point. And I think you're in either one of the two camps on skip. But what he's what he's been able to do is he's been able to force every single person that watches him to formulate an opinion on him. And I can't tell you how difficult that is. I've worked in the business for 30 years and I've never tried to be that guy. I've always tried to be genuine who I am. But the process, the, the, the result of that, Doug, is most people don't have a real opinion of me because I'm just milk toast. I come on. I, I, it was my role to be um, a host, which I always felt was, you know, you should be polite and welcoming. And I also was a moderator. So I tried to keep the debate stimulated and the con- comments interesting. But there's no... There's no character in that. There's no um, making people love or hate me for that. I mean, I always felt fortunate that the Twitter, um, the Twitterverse, always responded positively to what I did. But that's because it wasn't controversial, right? Um, you know, and so I was just kind of that guy that m- made a career of not really standing out. Well, that that can work. You can have a long and successful career doing that. But if you want the seven million dollar a year contract, you got to figure out a way to do something that very few, if any, have done. And you can name them on one hand. I think Howard Cosell was was that guy. Right. Years and years and years ago, our viewers, many of them, don't know who he is. Um, I think Chris Berman was able to do that. Chris had a large following, and he seemed to, like most polarizing guys, have a big group of people that loved him and thought he reinvented the wheel. And another group that felt like he was a cheap imitation of Howard and that he was, you know, whatever. And wherever you fall on him, you have a thought on him. Right. That's what you need. And that's why Skip was able to make it work. And I have great respect um, and admiration for what Skip has been able to accomplish in the business. But I'll tell you this. I I remember one day we were together in a meeting and, and he had his Twitter account open and, he's, and, and he doesn't read the comments. But as, as, a, as an exercise, um, I had asked him, you know, how do, how do you deal with all this hate? Because I see it directed towards you because I'm connected to you. Right. It would make me want to turtle up and go into a dark room and never come out. And he goes, I, I don't even – I'm not bothered by it one bit. And he's not. Um, I think in some crazy way he just that's, – that's reaffirmation to him that he's doing his job. And Skip, no one prepares like Skip Bayless. No one works as hard at covering sports than Skip Bayless. And I know that seems like it's hyperbole, and how can I possibly say that? I can tell you the man has two real interests in his life, and it's fitness and it's sports. And if he's not working out, he's watching sports or consuming sports in some form so he can be the most educated commentator he can for those two and a half hours that he's on the air in the morning um no one came in each day and was more prepared he sees everything he has multiple screens he dvrs things he never goes on television and espouses an opinion that he hasn't very thoughtfully and carefully examined 
Um, people used to ask me all the time, there's no way he could really believe all that stuff. To that, I would say I'm not completely convinced that all of those opinions are authentic and organic. And that's not to say that he's a fraud. I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is when Skip comes to a conclusion on a debate topic, he is so good at formulating a case to not only talk others into believing that case, but perhaps even further convincing himself Mm -hmm. that he's right. Um, And again, I think that comes back to his intelligence. He would have been an incredible attorney. Yeah. Um, He's, he is a very strong debater and there were, you know, there were occasions where um, I actually changed my opinion and I'm not talking watershed right. um, opinions, but maybe opinions where I was wishy-washy to begin with. At the end of the topic, I would say, damn, <laughs> it's, it's kind of crazy genius, but I'm with you on this, Skip. I, 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 you, you've convinced me. And I think the other guy that's had the um, ability to do that for me is Colin Coward. He's mm-hmm. another very strong debater. Um, he comes prepared. He has great knowledge. He looks at things slightly different than differently than most do, um, and you know he's he's very good at doing that as well. I am proud that in most debates there is no clear cut winner or loser. There isn't. Um, you know, is is Tio a cancer? Well, I mean, make a strong case that he was a negative influence on a lot of the teams he played for. Is he a Hall of Famer? Um, yeah, <laughs> I mean, right. look at the numbers. So um, there, there, there's very few instances where at the end of the debate you can say with 100% certainty you were wrong and I, I was right. Um, I was asked by Skip to debate him one time in, in our uh, eight-plus years together. It, it was um, – Jim Tomey was approaching his 500th home run. Okay. And it, typically, as you know, that's – you know, a, a rubber stamp to Cooperstown. Right now, mind you, he played in the steroid era, and you know, five hundred maybe, um, you know, six hundred maybe was the new five hundred, as we saw the explosion of home runs through the nineties. And then there was always the question: if you played in that era, were you clean? Right. So we were having a discussion in the office um, in, in our show meeting prior to the show. Tommy hit number five hundred, and I said, you know. Jim hit number 500. Um, I think that's a good time to debate is he a Hall of Famer. And Skip was like, he's not a Hall of Famer. And I'm like, you're 1,000% wrong. Jim Tomey's a Hall of Famer. And we we got into it really strong, so good that he goes, save it for TV. I'm debating Jay on topic number six. And the question was, is Jim Tomey a Hall of Famer? And for five minutes, we went toe-to-toe. He told me why he wasn't, and I told uh, told him why he was. And, um, you know, it took 10 years or so <laughs> to play out. Yeah. But as I was watching Jim's speech on tape, because I, I DVR'd it because I was at Browns camp. But when I came home from Browns camp Saturday, I fired up the speech and watched it. And as I was watching it, I had a smile on my face saying, gotcha, Skip. I'm one and all. <laughs> I hope, did you email him? I hope you emailed Skip Bayless and said that. I, I, I didn't. And I really, I should have. And maybe I still will. Maybe I will, because um, we keep in touch. Um, I consider Skip to be um, a, a 
longtime friend and a huge uh, fan of what he's been able to do. I don't agree with many of his takes. Um, and we had famous um, toe-to-toes over LeBron. That was the other time that I felt compelled to um, put my moderator hat to the side yeah. and just look him in the face and say, Skip, you are absolutely crazy. You are absolutely wrong on this guy. Um, you got to stop because it's hurting your brand. But that is his brand. Um, I learned early, too, that Skip shoots at Eagles. Um, mm. He goes for the T.O.s and the Tiger Woods and the LeBron James. And I don't know if it's still on his Twitter bio, but he used to have a line on his Twitter bio, something to the effect, um, I'm the guy that's willing to give you the truth that no one else is, or something like that. Yeah. That's, 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 that's a poor... Um, that's a poor imitation of what he actually has on there or had on there. I don't know if he still does, but that is kind of, that was kind of the beauty of skip. He, he would come at you like whenever there was a a widespread agreement on somebody, skip felt compelled to be the voice of dissent. And he was the guy that was going to tell us why tiger woods wasn't the guy we thought. Right. And why, Teal wasn't the guy we thought, and why LeBron wasn't the guy we thought. And history will show on all three that there are definitely, uh, there's rings of truth to all three of those arguments. It, um, those, those were kind of the three that were propped up during the height of our era. Together. Right. And, you know, T.O., there was some self-implosion to T.O. We all witnessed it many times. Um, I think the same can be said uh, for Tiger Woods. Um, I think, to a lesser extent, extent, LeBron James. LeBron has had some missteps, clearly, um, um, but his missteps um, haven't been, you know, with the law, or they haven't been, you know, things that we can wag a finger at. They've just been decisions that he has made that maybe, um, you know, that didn't play well. Let's put it that way. Yeah, that is interesting. And, I mean, I think I think for a lot of people in Ohio, that the, the LeBron stuff with Skip is the one thing you're talking about maybe if it would come back and hurt your brand. I think that LeBron, there was a time when LeBron went to Miami, there was a lot of people who were on the bandwagon of criticizing LeBron with what he did since he came back to Cleveland, with what he does off the court, what he did dragging the Cavs to a championship. It seems much more difficult to to reasonably really go hard at LeBron, and it seems like Skip's a guy out there who still does that, and that's the thing you hear the blowback on, it seems like, the most, that why is Skip Bayless still on LeBron when what LeBron has done the last four years is almost, to everyone else, pretty amazing? Well, the fact that that's the only only, um, negative mark on this Warriors dynasty that we're looking at, and let's face it, this, this Warriors dynasty, and I always hate using the words all time, but I compare eras. I, I believe that's very important. I believe that Babe Ruth uh, and all of his records are important, but they were they were all set against you know a game that was entirely white. Right. Um, so I like to compare eras, and as I do that, and people start talking about the greatest teams of all time, I ask myself one question. How would that team do against this team if both were at their best? So in other words, you can take the dynasties of the Celtics and the Lakers of the past, and how would they fare against the Warriors? And I know that the get-off-my-lawn crowd loves to say that there's no way that the Warriors would trip up any of these teams. In my, 
in my mind and the way I play these games out, these imaginary games, there's no way any of these former dynastic teams could beat the Warriors. There just is not. Um, and, you know, that's an argument. That's a debate. It can't ever, it will never be settled. It can't be proven. But in my mind, the Golden State Warriors, as currently constituted, make up one of the most dynastic teams I've ever seen in my lifetime. And the only thing that tripped them up was LeBron James, and he had help. He had great players. It took you know a couple of other great players with great performances to get there. But they don't get there without LeBron James being absolutely all-universe great right. during that series. Doug, my favorite stat in all of sports is the following. LeBron James is the only player ever to lead all players, both teams, in all five stats for an NBA final. That will never be duplicated. Yeah. Ever, ever. And I, you can't say that about any stat. You know, you can look at Bonds' 75 and think that, you know what, no one's going to get there. But it's it's attainable. It's possible. If, if uh, you know, a, if a judge or a Stanton gets on a roll and stays healthy, look, I'm not going to say that 75 is impossible. It's highly unlikely. The one, the one thing that I can say with all certainty, we'll never see ever again, is a player leading a seven-game series against an all-time great team in all five categories. Yeah. The, the, the body type demanded that's demanded to lead in rebounds is the antithesis of the body type demanded that's going to lead in assists. Right. And points to blocks and steals. It's just, it is, my mind spins when I think of that accomplishment. It is, it is one of the greatest individual achievements I've ever witnessed in sport. And um, so when he couldn't jump on board after that, then it was my determination that perhaps, I don't want to say his judgment is clouded, but perhaps he's so entrenched on this anti-LeBron that it's just too late to change yeah. now. And he knows that. He knows if he does, it'd be the ultimate flip-flopper. Right. But I hope before his career ends, I hope he comes on television and uh, pays that man the respect that he's due. Because whether you like or don't like LeBron um, on the decisions that he's made on where to play basketball, there's no debating what this guy has done for his community, what he's done for a city. He's revived Cleveland. Um, I don't think Cleveland's going to collapse that he's gone. I, 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 um, he, will he have an economic impact? Of course. Our city's going to survive and thrive. That's who we are. But uh, you can't hate on what that guy has done between the lines because when he decides that he's had enough, I think – most level-headed people that make decisions on legacies will say, maybe he's not the greatest, but he is on the Mount Rushmore, and that's not debatable. And, you know, Jordan's six for six um, could have easily been four and two. Right. And and LeBron's terrible record, if he had the supporting cast um, that he had in Miami and for the one year in Cleveland— that they want it, um, it, 
differently, but I'm not going to measure an individual legacy on a team achievement. I'm not going to do that because you could have the greatest baseball player in the world. Um, how many World Series did Ted Williams win yeah. or play? Uh, I'm not going to say Ted Williams sucked because he didn't take his uh, Red Sox to the World Series. I mean, it's going um, on with Mike Trout right now. I mean, everybody knows absolutely. Mike Trout's the best player in baseball, but his team hasn't done anything. And the fact of the matter is, um, in baseball, you have about 8% impact on what your team is going to do. Maybe less when you start figuring in how specialized the pitching side of the game is today. You need different kinds of starters. You need every different kind of reliever. Um, a, a star like Mike Trout, who probably is the best player in the game, um, at the end of the day, the impact that he has on his team winning or losing is far greater than the impact that a basketball superstar can have on his team's winning or losing. Yeah. Um, and in football, unless you're a quarterback – you're not going to have that kind of impact. Quarterbacks, I believe, can, can you know, they're more valuable uh, to their team than any other position player in sports, in my view. But that still doesn't mean you're going to win a championship if you've got a great one. If, if, if you look at Tom Brady's career, mm-hmm. it means you're going to get there a lot. And it means you're going to have your fair share of success when you get there. But there are too many other variables. He doesn't tackle. He doesn't run the football. He doesn't block. He doesn't play special teams. You know, LeBron plays everything, as yeah. you can see from him leading all five statistical categories for a seven-game finals. Um, so, you know, let's give the man his due. I hope Skip does that at some point before he retires. Um, I don't expect it because um, if you ask him, he's never been wrong. He's he's <laughs> he's undefeated. <laughs> but you're you're. You're the only person. You're the only person who's undefeated against Skip Bayless with the one and zero Jim Tomey record. So let's make sure we realize that, Jay. Um, well, let's just say I was smart enough to know how to pick my battle. <laughs> <laughs> I, I want to. I'm going to give you one last question, and you can go with it any way you want to go. The career you've had, the tremendous um, things that you've done, that you've helped lead on, that you've been a part of. Um, you're 53. You look like you're 35. You're doing these Browns preseason games now. Just what do you think of what you've done so far in your career, Jay, um, as you look back on it? And, and what do you want to do now? What would you still like to do um, going forward with what you have ahead of you? Okay. Um, that's, a, that's a great question, by the way, Doug. And thank you for the compliment. I wish I looked 35. <laughs> um, I'm, I'm very proud of what I've been able to accomplish. I was talking with, um, and this is funny because most people think I'm lying, but I'm not. Uh, I was talking with Tim Couch the other day, and I started my career in a, at a very small television station, a CBS affiliate in Hazard, Kentucky. Yes, it is a real place. No, it's not where the Dukes of Hazard are based. Boy. Yeah. Um, it's a very small community, um, and Tim played high school sports 15 miles from the station in Hazard. And when I got there, there was no coverage of high school sports, very little. We would show highlights of one game on a Friday night, 
And on a, a Tuesday night and during basketball season, we would show a couple of highlights of basketball games Tuesdays and Friday nights. But there was no real commitment to high school sports. And having played my high school sports between Cleveland and Toledo, uh, where it was literally if a tree fell and no one was there to, to, to witness it, did it make a noise? We never had television cameras at any of my games, ever. And um, I always felt like, you know, how much fun it would have been for all of us if we were getting just a little bit of coverage. Mm -hmm. And when I went to Hazard, um, I asked our general manager after a couple of months there, could I start a 30 minute highlight show on Friday nights that highlights the accomplishments of area high school athletes? And he loved the idea. And we started it in 1988. And the show has won too many awards to repeat, um, most of which I wasn't actually there um, for those. We won a few awards when I was there. I was only there three years. But the show um, has been, by all accounts, a wild success. And by that, I mean ratings have been incredible. The show is still on the air. They expanded the, uh, the coverage from Friday to Saturday night. But to me, Doug, the biggest... Uh, measure of success i would equate with that show i was back in the area a couple of years ago for a reunion for the station and we had a golf outing and there were a lot of former coaches that came by to say hello and a lot of old relationships were rekindled and i can't tell you how many coaches came up to me and said jay i had four kids get scholarships that otherwise wouldn't have hmm. gotten scholarships because of the commitment that you guys made to cover these guys and to, to give us tape, good tape of what these kids can do. And, you know, we, it was, my idea was I wanted to be a 30 minute sports center, but I wanted to be a local high school sports. Mm -hmm. So we would, on Friday night, we would show highlights of six to 10 games. We created um, a mountain top five where we rated all of the teams in our 35 coverage, our 35 County coverage area. Um, we brought together a very economically depressed region, and sports was the great unifier, uh, and that's still the case. And we started a, a basketball tournament, which is king in Kentucky, called the WIMT Mountain Classic. We invite eight teams from our coverage area, which spans 120 miles east to west and 70 miles north to south. And the whole purpose of that tournament was to provide eight scholarships for athletes and eight scholarships for students that um, that attend the schools that were invited in that year. And they've done a terrific job through the 30 years of rotating the schools in that get to play. And I can't remember what the total count is. It seems to me it was upwards of half a million dollars, maybe really? more wow. of scholarships that have been handed out to very needy kids, Doug, um, that aren't just athletes, but also um, are working hard in the classroom and, you know, need that little extra financial help. Um, and they've been the difference from kids going to college and not. So it's been probably the most impactful thing I've been a part of. It's probably the thing that I'm most proud of. I'm also proud of um, the number of former interns that I have working um, in TV today. That's been something that's been very gratifying for me. I had a lot of help. I was horrible when I was doing my internship. <laughs> I had a guy that was willing to invest in me because he saw that I had a passion 
and a work ethic to make my dream come true. And when I landed my first job, I called him and I said, I don't know how I'll ever thank you enough for the effort that you've put into me and the interest that you've, for some reason, um, put into helping me with my career. And I just kind of flippantly said, I don't know how I'll ever repay you. And he said, you won't repay me. You're going to pay it forward to countless others that serve as your interns. And you'll feel the same uh, strong impulse to help them that I felt to help those that I felt were interested in it enough to go chase it. And so I took that very seriously. And um, I took great joy in staying late after a show to help an intern write a sports cast or to go out on a set and to read a demo set so he can put together a tape so we can send it out to get that first job. Um, in fact, Derek Forrest at Channel 5, the newly hired um, sports guy at Channel 5, was one of my associate producers at Cold Pizza. Really? He came to me one day and said, Jay, I really want to do what you're doing. And I always admired the courage that it takes for a young guy or gal to come up and utter those words. That's like you know telling somebody you're going to be an astronaut. Right. Um, Folks tend to look at you kind of crazy when they say, I want to be a TV sportscaster. They're like, oh, yeah, well, do you want a pony for Christmas, too? <laughs> um, so it comes with a sense of crazy. But it also, to me, said that person is so committed to chasing this dream that they are willing to verbalize that to someone that they barely know. And each time someone has done that, I've, I've viewed that as a uh, – not a cry for help, but you know, they're asking – me if I can help them get where I am and it's you know I have an obligation to make sure that that I do that so with with um with Derek we had some conversations I wanted to look at his tape I looked at his tape I critiqued it I told him where I would make changes I helped him in the process of getting a new tape together um and then um I reached out to my former employer in Hazard Kentucky and said hey listen I got a guy that I think you need to hire and I, Derek was willing to go there and Derek knew all of the truths. You know, he knew that it was a very small, very rural area. Um, you know, being an African-American, um, they, I don't know that they had, that station had ever hired an African-American. I don't know that they had, um, Derek may have been the first and he was unwavering in his, um, desire to go wherever the path took him, which was how I ended up there. And um, it, it gives me great joy to flip on the local uh, ABC affiliate and see a guy that was once my associate producer who has never fallen out of contact. Every six months, I get a tape from Derek Forrest like clockwork. Really? Wow. Every six months because I've demanded it from him. I tell him, OK, great. Here's what I see. I like this. I think you can improve in this area. Six months, hit me up again. And he has never missed the six months he's constantly updating me on his progress and um i've had a very very i don't want to in any way take credit for Derek's success i don't want to do that i've had a very small hand in it but i i take a great deal of pride in guys like Derek and others that i could look at and say i don't know if they would be in that spot um if i hadn't given them the time and the commitment that i did just as I can say every day that I practice my profession, I don't think I would be in the spot that I was in if a guy 35 years ago 
didn't believe in me and didn't give me the opportunities that um, I, I believe I'm um, obligated to give others that are interested in, you know, forging their way through this wildly crazy business that we call home, Doug. It's, um, you know, it's filled with landmines. And um, I, I'm, I'm, so those are the things that I'm most proud of. Am I proud to be kind of a morning sports TV pioneer? Absolutely. But at the end of the day, um, those aren't seeds that, that you know, grow oak trees. Uh, the seeds that have grown oak trees are um, the interns that I've helped and um, the legacy that I helped create at a very small station in a very small and depressed corner of the world that most people don't know about. Um, but I view it as a true success story and, and um, one of the very few ways that our medium can have such a positive impact. And um, if you don't believe me, get a list of the hundreds of students that have um, had college um, become a reality because of the scholarships that they were able to get through either the Mountain Classic Basketball Tournament or through the exposure that they were able to get because we were putting them on TV every Tuesdays and Friday nights. Crazy. Man, that's an awesome story, Jay. Um, it's pretty wild. Pretty wild. crazy. It's, it's cool when you can look back on that and, and have a – have an appreciation for that. So what do you, you're doing these Browns games. What else, what else do you want to do? I mean, you've, you've well, done so much. What else you want to do? I can't do anything until next fall. Um, I still am in the employee of ESPN, believe it or not. Um, they own me so they can de- de- decide what I can do and what I can't do. Um, most things that I've asked for permission, um, to do, um, get rebuffed. They um, did give me permission to work for the Patriots and their TV network last um, postseason. So I got to cover the Super Bowl for the Patriots television network. Um, And they gave me permission to do that, just as they gave me permission to call the Browns preseason games, which I'm thrilled that they did. But I can't take a full-time job that's in television. You know, I did um, serve as an executive in residence at my alma mater in Bowling Green last academic year. Um, they really couldn't stand in my way of doing that because it wasn't in the media space. Okay. Um, you know, they own my rights in terms of media space. So I, I wouldn't be able to write, do radio, do um, television on a full-time basis um, because until next fall, I'm still owned by ESPN. So I'm anxiously um, waiting for my non-compete to expire. Um, and I am thrilled with the possibilities that lie ahead. I very much want to continue doing television. I love it. Um, it's all I know how to do, Doug. I'm not going to, um, I'm not going to find a new path now. Um, I feel that I can still be an asset to a company, whether it's a local news station or it's a regional sports outlet. Um, I, the only real determination that I've made is that I'm pretty sure I don't want to do anything at the network level anymore. Okay. Um, so, you know, there are certain things that I was able to rule out right away and I did have some conversations, but, um, I want to live where I want to live. I've lived in the Northeast for the last 15 years and there wasn't a day that went by where I didn't crave to wake up and be in my native, of uh, 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 Northwest Ohio. And, I wanted to come home and this, you know, this wrinkle in the road, if you will, um, 
allowed me to move home and to, uh, you know, there are days I, I went to a ton of Cavs games. I go to a lot of Indians games. I, on days where I'm going to a game, I actually say to myself, I'm going to the Indians game. I'm going to get in my car and drive there. It's not going to include a hotel or an airplane. Um, I'm going to, after the game, maybe hang out downtown, grab a meal, grab a drink, come home and sleep in my own bed. I've never been able to do that since I left Northwest Ohio as a 21-year-old to go chase a TV dream. And um, my kids are raised. I could I could go wherever I wanted. And um, is there any place better than home? You know, the, the easy and unequivocal answer for me on that one is no. And I'm, I'm every day I wake up, I'm thrilled to be here. And um, I've talked to different television uh, outlets here locally, um, and I have plans to talk to more. I want to stay locally. I, I, I want to be here. I don't want to be anywhere else. I want to work around and cover the teams that I'm passionate about and that I, that I care about. And um, I'm thrilled that the Browns have given me this opportunity. It is by far the greatest assignment I've ever had. And I've covered Super Bowls and World Series and NBA Finals and college football championships, everything. This by far is the greatest assignment I've ever had. Jay Crawford, fascinating stuff, fascinating career. Um, looking forward to what's next. Looking forward to hearing you on the Browns preseason games. Thank you so much. Your career has come full circle now, Jay. Uh, Jay. You went from first take to takes by the lake. What a phenomenal <laughs> opportunity for you. So thank you so much for your time. And, um, yeah, looking forward to the start of this uh, Browns preseason. Um, no, and thank you. Thank you very much, and uh, please say hi when we're out of camp. I will. Thank you so much, Jay. You bet. And that's it for another Takes by the Lake. Follow Jay Crawford on Twitter at Jay Crawford Clee, Jay Crawford C-L-E. Follow me on Twitter at Doug LeMaurice, D-O-U-G-L-E-S-M-E-R-I-S-E-S. Listen to Takes by the Lake. Listen to Buckeye Talk. Read our stuff at Cleveland.com. Thanks to you guys for listening. Thanks to Jay Crawford. That was Takes by the Lake. And we'll talk to you next time.